I am deeply curious when it comes to the future of work. I mean, the pandemic seems just to have accelerated this conversation in a way that two years ago, say, felt inconceivable. But, you know, the future of work isn't just let's Zoom everything. The bigger questions are, well, how does power work? And how do we stay human-centered? And how do we figure out our way through complexity? Welcome to Two Pages with MBS. This is the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that has moved them, a book that has shaped them. Lisa Gill is also a future of work obsessive. She's the host of a podcast called Leader Morphosis. And I think that's probably the podcast that explores the edges of how work is evolving. She's also the co-author of the intriguingly entitled Moose Heads on the Table, which is really about how organizations are doing things differently in the Nordics, I think in Sweden in particular. Much like the rest of us, Lisa started her career in kind of a traditional, aka slightly archaic company system. So when did she realize that things had to change? I think there were a series of moments, really, of being a frustrated employee and being annoyed that I couldn't get involved more with things because they weren't officially in my job description and bumping up against the hierarchy and the bureaucracy of various different organizations. Um, and I remember a particular moment where an organization I was working in that I had really started to find my place and was enjoying. Um, uh, and overnight, the management team put together this secret PowerPoint presentation that they revealed to the company the next day of the new organizational structure. And it was this series of boxes, and they had sort of created all these levels of hierarchy. And this was quite a small company. And I remember the sort of atmosphere in the room where people were just like, what is this? Like, what were you thinking? Like, why haven't you consulted any of us? Aha, snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. After that moment, things really changed. And I was fascinated by that, that the climate really shifted and suddenly this us versus them thing occurred. And I think after that, I, I started to read more books and go to more conferences and speak to more people who were doing other things. And I realized, hey, there's there are alternatives. It doesn't have to be like this. There are ways of involving people more and you don't have to have this kind of rigid hierarchy that you can have a much more creative kind of fluid uh, exchange of power and information and things like that. So that was, I think, the, the moment where I was like, okay, I think, I, I think I'm done with this now. I'm going to start something else. I sometimes wonder whether this future of work stuff is, you know, for a small group of mavericks and weirdos and outsiders like me and maybe Lisa, um, perhaps the occasional quirky founder. But can it be a mainstream thing? I really don't want it to be a fringe thing. And I, th I think I have come some way in my thinking because I know in the beginning when I started reading about these ideas, I was a bit snobby and a bit dogmatic. And I felt like, you know, self-managing teams is the future and anyone who's not doing that, you know, sorry, you're going to get left behind. <laughs> See ya kind of thing. Right. And, and I realized at some point that that's, that's kind of, um, it's kind of harsh and cruel in a way, because I've met so many people since who are, you know, right in the middle of a big hierarchical organization, for example, often yeah. like a public sector organization. And they're so desperate to try new things. And they have so many brilliant ideas. Mm. And they're often really lonely. And 
those people are able to do things. It might not be as radical as some of the, you know, organizations at the other end of the continuum that I talk to or yeah. uh, work with. But there, for me, it comes down to like impacting individuals, those closest to you. And so if someone in the middle of an organization starts using liberating structures, for example, to mm-hmm. have totally different kinds of meetings and just inviting in different voices or creating more safety for people to really open up like that is meaningful that's worthwhile so i think for me it's really important that this is accessible for everyone and i'm really trying to learn or unlearn speaking in jargon for example (laughs) and really kind of boiling this down to what are we talking about here we're talking about people being more involved in things that affect them and people being more human with each other right because that is going to make it more likely that i can be intelligent and creative and, you know, share things openly and we'll just you know, solve problems and come up with new ideas. And that for me is what it's about, really. I love that. And I love, I love you pointing to the loneliness of the person who can sense that I, I want things to be different. I'm just not sure how. And it feels like there's a lot of unmutableness around me, unchangingness around me. And I'll come to that. I want to come to that after after we hear what your two pages are. So tell us what book you've selected to read for us. Yeah. So I've selected Leadership in the New Science, Discovering Order in a Chaotic World by Margaret Wheatley. The legendary Meg Wheatley. This is fantastic because I remember finding this book when it came out and going, this book blows my mind and I have no idea what to do with it. (laughs) Both of those things. Um, But how did it come into your life? When did it show up? Yeah, I can't remember exactly. I remember reading about it somewhere or other and and being amazed that someone had written about self-managing organizations and teams in the 90s when I had just started to discover this, you know, um, this was like five, six years ago. Um, and also because I studied drama, I think I'm always really interested in using different lenses to yeah. gain new perspectives in fields. So I loved the idea that she was saying, you know, the same quantum shift that we had in science, we now need in management and organizations. Right. And that seemed like a really interesting lens for me. So I remember reading about it and then picking it up and i i read it on holiday with my partner in portugal we were in um lisbon and we had got the train up to sintra which is this magical place up in the hills and i was reading it on the train down and i just kept reading passages out to him and highlighting (laughs) entire pages because i was like this is amazing this is so like this is just articulating exactly my frustrations with the world of work and and exactly the way that I think we need to look at things completely differently, you know, that paradigm shift to right. me was like, yes, <laughs> it felt so current. Yeah. And yet it was 1992 that it first was published. What a combination, Meg Weedley and Portuguese custard tart, two of the best things in the mm. world. Um, oh. So so you're highlighting all these pages and I'm asking you just to pick two. How did you choose which two pages to read? Well, it was really difficult because I, I have an app on my phone that's like my my second brain and I had like I said highlighted entire pages throughout the whole book so choosing two pages was difficult but I wanted to choose two pages that uh, invoked for me one of the key themes which was about relationships and Mm. so I found a good little passage that I think 
captures the essence of why the book was so special to me. Brilliant. Well, why don't we hear these two pages? Let me let me introduce you formally. Uh, Lisa Gill, podcast host and author, reading from Meg Wheatley's classic and radical book on leadership, Leadership and the New Science. Lisa, over to you. To live in a quantum world, to weave here and there with ease and grace, we need to change what we do. We need fewer descriptions of tasks and instead learn how to facilitate process. We need to become savvy about how to foster relationships, how to nurture growth and development. All of us need to become better at listening, conversing, respecting one another's uniqueness, because these are essential for strong relationships. The era of the rugged individual has been replaced by the era of the team player. But this is only the beginning. The quantum world has demolished the concept that we are unconnected individuals. More and more relationships are in store for us, out there in the vast web of life. Even organizational power is purely relational. One evening, I had a long exploratory talk with a wise friend who told me that power in organizations is the capacity generated by relationships. It is an energy that comes into existence through relationships. Ever since that conversation, I have changed what I pay attention to in an organization. Now I look carefully at a workplace's capacity for healthy relationships, not its organizational form in terms of tasks or functions, span of control and hierarchies, but things more fundamental to strong relations. Do people know how to listen and speak to each other? To work well with diverse members? Do people have free access to one another throughout the organization? Are they trusted with open information? Do organizational values bring them together or keep them apart? Is collaboration truly honored? Can people speak truthfully to one another? Because power is energy, it needs to flow through organizations. It cannot be bounded or designated to certain functions or levels. What gives power its charge, positive or negative, is the nature of the relationship. When power is shared in such workplace redesigns as participative management and self-managed teams, positive creative power abounds. For years, many people and researchers have described the positive impacts of these new relationships, power that shows up as significant increases in productivity and personal satisfaction. In other workplaces, leaders attempt to force better results through coercion and competition. Sometimes they exhibit a flagrant disregard for people and their abilities. In such organizations, a high level of energy is also created but it's entirely negative. Power becomes a problem, not a capacity. People use their creativity to work against these leaders or in spite of them. They refuse to contribute positively to the organization. The learning for all of us seems clear. If power is the capacity generated by our relationships, then we need to be attending to the quality of those relationships we would do well to ponder the realization that love is the most potent source of power. Oh, 
That's a perfect place to end. Nice, nicely edited, nicely chosen. Love is the most perfect form of power. That's wonderful. Um, there's a lot there, Lisa. What What about this passage in particular kind of struck home for you? Yeah, I think I I often quote that um, conversation she had with her friend that power is the capacity generated by relationships uh, when talking about organizations. But I think that applies to just about everything, actually. Right. Um, so that for me is really powerful and and kind of speaks to what I focus on now in my work, which is it's all about relationships and having different kinds of conversations, totally different kinds of conversations to what we normally have in normal organizations. We talk about, you know, budgets and schedules and processes and deadlines, but it's the relationships, the things going on between us that really influence whether we work together right. well or not and whether we're happy or fulfilled or not. Right. Um, and also for me, that idea that, that it can be, uh, a, a negative or a positive power mm. and that when the relationships aren't attended to, when they're not important and, and managers, for example, even disregard people that there's power there, but people are kind of working against them. They're sort of like, well, screw you. I'm going to do it my way <laughs> right, right. or I'm going to do the minimal yeah. viable amount of work for me to not get fired, yeah. you know, which is such a waste, such a waste of potential in the organization. It's such a waste of life for those people. Yeah. But I've, I find that that's so prevalent, sadly, in lots of organizations. So for me, this piece is really, mm. it's really beautiful. It also kind of evokes this almost like rage in me, you know, this is such, you know, it's not <laughs> rocket science, right. um, but it's something that we so rarely talk about or, or pay any attention to in most organizations, I think. When you talk about rage, what is it that makes you so angry? I think it's that when I, when I was a frustrated employee, I was angry at, at managers and management teams sometimes yeah. because I felt like they were the villains, right? <laughs> right the enemy, right. like they don't understand yeah. and all, if only they knew this, da, da, da. And looking back, I can see that I was also guilty of dehumanizing those people and realizing that it's also really lonely to be a manager mm. and to, you know, the higher up you go, the colder it gets, someone once said to me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so much of management is also pretending it's look, trying to look good. It's trying to maintain some semblance of control. Um, so it's in some ways my anger is now redirected. It's not necessarily at those individuals because I don't think they're wrong or bad, but at us, I guess, collectively for continuing this system right. that doesn't work for people. Uh, and now it, we know it also doesn't really work for organizations, but we're so wedded to it. Right. <laughs> and you can see that in the aftermath of COVID as well, that some organizations are embracing you know, remote working, for example, mm -hmm. or working in less rigid ways and others are going, you know, even stronger in the other direction, right. you know, like only engaged employees are the ones who come back to work or, you know, now we're going to reintroduce this and this. And it's just like, why, why are we so afraid to open our eyes to a different possibility where we can trust people to be the capable adult humans that they are? What is the fear that lies at the heart of traditional management? 
I spend a lot of time in trainings with managers and what I pick up is that there's such a strong sense of responsibility mm. and pressure I think to to have the answers to do the right thing you know that I have to get the team or the organization to do this and to say I don't know or <laughs> right. to say you know hey I really want us to work more in this way but I don't really know how to do that and I'm going to try but I'm probably going to fail and make mistakes um that takes so much courage and is so countercultural I think so I think yeah. I think I think many managers also know that people like me when I back when I was a frustrated employee are vilifying them to some extent right. and and therefore they feel misunderstood unfairly you know, represented, like I'm trying, I'm really trying my best, but I'm tired and busy and under pressure. And I and existing I don't structures know. that are directing my behavior in a way that's beyond my control or influence. Exactly. Yeah. Lisa, how would you diagnose the brokenness of relationships in organizations? I mean, you, we, you talk about and Meg Wheatley's piece talks about the power of relationships. But I think just to your very point, you're just making now, which is like, when lots of people think about the relationships they have, they're like, I don't want to replicate that. I don't want to double down on that. It's a bit, it's a bit crap, quite frankly. Is there, is there a lens or a way that you, you, you look at relationships and kind of go, this is, this is, this is the broken bit. Yeah. Margaret Wheatley herself says in the book, I think that we haven't yet learned how to be in this new age of relationships. Mm. And I think that's true, not just in organizations, but in general, because I think we're seeing shifts now in parenting, for example, yep. and also like personal relationships. A friend of mine, Alana Irving, wrote a great blog about running an agile retrospective on her relationship with her partner. Right. She's based so down in New Zealand, right? Yes. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. yeah. I know her stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So... I think so that shifted for me like my relationship with my partner for example that that i think often in many of our relationships we sort of accept that the good ones are good and the bad ones will maybe always be bad right. but there is a, a potential always to shift relationships and and it's like you know it, it to use a kind of cliched metaphor it is like gardening you know you have to attend to them to maintain relationships for them to be healthy. And that means, you know, if I have a small gripe with you, a pebble in my shoe with you about something that I bring that up mm. with you, which is scary for me personally, because I have a desperate need to be liked. <laughs> I, have and I don't too. want to be rejected. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So for me, it takes a lot of courage to say to someone, you know, I have this kind of minor irritation with you. And I really, I really don't think that's your intention, but it's okay if we talk about it because I, it's, I really want us to have a really open and trusting relationship or for me to say no to, to people that I care about is really tough. And I'm learning now, you know, the art of boundaries and that uh, it's important for the relationship for me to be able to say no in a good way. Also, otherwise I let people down further down the line or I burn out or so I think if I diagnose the problem in many of our broken relationships in the world, it's probably a lack of attending to the quality of our relationships. Right. 
and a lack of having conversations about the relationship. Right. Like kind of seeing it almost as a thing that we place between us. And this, this I've learned mainly from my colleagues at Tough Leadership Training that we actually teach managers and, and not just managers, but everyone, a relationship conversation. And we have a kind of framework for that mm. because it's something that we don't really learn or practice, but it's so game changing. Can you, can you help me and perhaps some people listening? Like, how do I go from zero to one? Because I hear you talk about, you know, having the courage to talk about the pebble in the shoe. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> I get that. And yet <laughs> it's quite, where do I even start with that? Is, is where, where do you start? If you're, if, if people are listening and they're going, actually, I'd love to commit to paying attention to my relationship. What, what guidance would you give me <laughs> and them as well, but mainly me? Yeah, I guess the first step is to do a bit of self-reflection. Mm. Like, what is it? What do I tell myself when I choose not to bring something up in a relationship, mm. for example? If I know that a relationship is deteriorated a little bit, what excuse do I give myself for right. why I don't try to clean that up? And and that's not for you to then punish yourself about that because it's human and natural that we do those things. But, you know, as I said, for me, it's I know that I have to overcome my need to be liked, to be reliable, to be um, to belong yeah. and 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 choose the relationship over that, that it's more important for me to have an open, honest relationship than it is mm. to be liked. Um, so that there's first okay, that kind let, of self Let me interrupt because that, that's, the crucial, that's the crucial exchange. This relationship and the quality of it is more important than me being liked or morally superior or right, even mm -hmm. in, in my own head, or the winner, or better than. There's a whole bunch of things you can mm -hmm. substitute in there. What was the moment where that balance tipped towards relationship for you? Was there a was there a moment where you went, it's it's worth it? Yeah, and it's it's funny you say that because my colleagues at Tuff and I often say to people in trainings, "Do you want to be right, or do you want to have a relationship?" <laughs> <laughs> Because to give up being right yeah. is painful. It's much, it's much more fun to be right. Yeah. Um, for me, the tipping point, I think with colleagues, it's been, I think, through many different opportunities to practice. And right. I'm, th I'm thinking about my example before of, of learning to say no. And last year I had an example where a friend of mine, actually, who's also a coach, we talk to each other every two weeks and listen to each other. And she could hear that I was really struggling with another project that I'd taken on. And she said, it sounds like you need to talk to that colleague and tell her that you need to pull out of that project. And that was really scary for mm. me because I thought, oh, but I don't want to let her down. And I don't want her to feel like I'm rejecting her or that I think that project's not important yeah, yeah. because it is I just I'm doing too many things and so everything in my body you know I was really <laughs> emotional about it and I was like wow what yeah. is this this yeah. is like suddenly there's all this energy and emotion um and through help from my friend and and also in therapy I've been exploring this a lot um 
I worked up the courage to say that to my colleague and she was lovely and really supportive and loving in response. And so I learned from that, that, okay, the relationship is stronger than I was giving it credit for. Right. That, it, that if I approach it with, you know, authenticity, integrity, generosity, chances are the other person will see that and appreciate that and say, I get it. Of course, I'm disappointed. Yeah. You know, I wanted you to be on that project, but thank you for saying that. I can see it was really hard for you to say that. We'll be okay. We'll figure it out. And so learning, you know, each time you do it, that the relationship can take it, that it's stronger than you think, that you can always clean something up yeah. most of the time. Yeah. Kind of starts to give you more courage, I think, each time you do it. I want to ask a follow-up question if I can, because you said, you know, in that telling that story, you could, when she said you need to have a conversation and you said, oh, I could really feel my response in my body. How important is it to have that embodied connection? And I'm speaking as a guy who sits in my head most of the time, not that brilliantly connected to what's going on emotionally or physically for me. But is that just a, a nice to have or, or is there something more crucial there around embodiedness? I, like you, have also been someone very uh, much in my head and I'm learning to pay more attention to what my body is telling me because I've become very good at suppressing it. Um, so it's often in moments like that, that conversation with my friend. And she had asked me at the start of the conversation, you know, is there anything you want to talk about? I was like, no, I'm fine. <laughs> but the more she probed, the more she realized, wow, it sounds like you're really stressed and you have a lot of things going on. And I was like, yeah, I do. <laughs> and then when she challenged me, like, sounds like you need to have a conversation with that person, then it was impossible to ignore, mm. you know? So I think, I think it is really helpful to pay attention to those embodied signals. Um, and, you know, so much of this stuff is, it's kind of like, mindfulness or meditation just paying attention to things observing things without judging them so that's the same thing with the self-reflection so what, what what i'm telling myself is i can't have that conversation because then they will think this and this or i might hurt them or you know whatever it is and just sitting with that being like okay and what what's to be gained if i do have the conversation yeah. and what could that mean and What's going on in my body? Well, I feel, you know, sick in my stomach and my palms are sweaty. Okay. Can I take some deep belly breaths? Yeah. Will that help? You know? <laughs> so I definitely think it makes a difference. If if you take that insight around the importance of embodiedness and kind of, you know, just hearing what's going on, and you come back to the bigger game around the future of work and organizations transforming. I'm really clear that ideas are never enough <laughs> to convince anybody to change anything. Um, but I don't really know how to scale embodied learning in organizations. So the organization feels it in its bones. You know, that works as a metaphor, but how do you make it work more literally? Do you, do you have any insight around that? I mean, you're, in your podcast, you've talked to so many interesting people on the edge of thinking about this. Is there a way for an organization to feel an embodied need to change and evolve? Gosh, that's such a big question. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely not a rhetorical question because I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's interesting because I, you know, I had the privilege of speaking to Margaret Wheatley on mm. my podcast and her conversation really challenged me because she 
I think she's come along in her thinking since this book, Leadership in the New Science, and in some ways has become a bit more, you could say, cynical. That yeah. I, I, I find I her work quite that, pessimistic. You know, when when you read yeah. her stuff now, she's not. She doesn't. It's not. It's not rainbows and unicorns at the end of this work for her. Yeah, I think she has. I think she has decided for herself it's not worth trying to change systems, for example, mm. that, um, or maybe that's not paraphrasing correctly, but but I think she is realizing that the individual needs to change, right. needs to want to change. And so she's working with individuals now that are up for that, what she calls humans of the warrior spirit, yeah. or humans for the warrior spirit. Um, and I think... <sighs> In some ways, I you know I haven't cracked this. No. I'm sorry to say, but I think if if you can find ways to create spaces for conversations in organisations, and and that in itself is it sounds really simple, but it's it's already tricky because you have to create a space for a different kind of conversation to happen right. because we're so used to having conversations in a certain kind of way. Um, and I, I think about, you know, in, in my work with TUF, we're often talking about paradigms and that there is this kind of parent child paradigm of leadership at the moment. And so to try and have a conversation about new ways of working without addressing first that we're in that paradigm, isn't really going to be effective because you're talking into that paradigm. Mm. So if you're training people in, or if you're saying in an organization, let's start to do agile or coaching or whatever, if you're not first addressing this place from which we operate, then right. you're just doing, you're just parents doing agile, parents doing coaching, right. you know? So I think, I think it needs to be some kind of conversation or, or even like a training space, a development space that shifts people that is completely different to how they normally have conversations. Um, yeah. And Michael Wiley has some good research about this that he noticed that um, to create kind of positive uh, relational dynamics, safe spaces and interaction scripts helped. So because you're asking people to take kind of um, risks in terms of new ways of interacting with each other, it helps to create a space that's totally different right. to the spaces they normally interact in. Right even if that's a virtual space, but say marking out, this is going to be different. Mm -hmm. And then interaction scripts, something that people can step into. Right. Like, so complete this sentence, you know, the thing I'm most afraid of in my leadership is yeah. or something. Yeah. I don't know. That's interesting. So yeah, that's, that's where I'm at at the moment, but it's a question I'm also wrestling with because I see that so many people are mm, averse to change or, or even when they say they want to change they quickly realize when the change starts to happen, oh, this isn't what I signed up for. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's like change is good, you go first. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I didn't know I had to change. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think every, definitely there are some people I know should change. Me, I'm, I'm probably okay. Um, <laughs> hey, to, to come back to one of the things that you read out from Meg Wheatley's piece, one of the, thing, one of the kind of short sentences uh, you read was, power is energy. I'm wondering what you make of that. Yeah, I think power is a topic that I'm still learning about. Mm. And I've had quite a few conversations about on my podcast, for example. Right. And 
one of the things I'm interested in at the moment is reclaiming negative aspects of ourselves and and things so like I said before um I was someone who at first thought oh all hierarchy is bad Mm. we need to destroy hierarchy um if we do that everything will be great and now I realize hierarchy is neither good nor bad it's a technology it's a tool it can be used for good and I think power is sort of similar that Again, a lot of organizations that I'm working with that are interested in being self-managing or right. you know, working in a more decentralized way shun power, but mm. power is bad. Anything that resembles leadership or influence is bad. Yeah. We must shut that down. We must stamp that out. But power is energy. And when you do that, if you, if you try to shut it down, it's, you sort of choke that energy, I think, and that life force gets, you kind of put a lid on it. And I think what's needed is for us to reclaim those things, to kind of acknowledge that I have the capacity within me to share power and I also have the capacity to dominate and I also have the capacity to abdicate, you know, and, and to try and explore and have conversations about how do we want power to be used and where is power currently Mm. to really confront that, you know, in terms of privilege and gender and race for example in yeah. organizations like where is power where is it not and mickey Kashtan talks about this beautifully in in a conversation i had with her that we need in addition to the shifts the shift in our organizations of like the key processes and structures two other shifts need to happen one is a shift within the people who have power and one is a shift in the people who don't have power right so for example, if I'm a manager, I I need to learn how to let go or step back sometimes, invite in other voices. And if I'm someone who hasn't had power, I need to learn how to take more initiative, responsibility, challenge things, because I've become very used to deferring or being a bit passive or, you know, getting my manager to sort out my conflicts yeah. or whatever. And so both of these transformations are really tough and challenging and and perhaps it's even more challenging for those without power because it is more at stake perhaps more at risk um yeah but i think that's what i'm really interested in is shifting our relationship to power seeing it as a force and an energy force that can be used for good do you have any insight on how to make just power more tangible because even as you set up that you know people who have power people who don't have power Part of where I go, Lisa, is I go, the people who have power don't always see the power that they have <laughs> and they don't always know it because it's invisible because it's integrated or it's in privilege or whatever it might be. And people who don't have power actually have more power than they realize. Um, and to 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 make it just a kind of black and white, you either got it or you ain't got it, it reduces the the nuance and the complexity of what's really going on. But it's so damn fleeting <laughs> and tricky to understand what what power, what your power looks like and what it is and where boundaries for it might lie. Do you have any insight on how to articulate power? Yeah, I think this is something that I'm still quite new to. But what I'm starting to explore is having conversations and trying to figure that out together 
and it might be things like asking um you know who who tends to talk a lot in in mm. meetings or talk the most uh who tends to talk the least uh okay. you know when do i experience um that i feel comfortable to say something and that i'm going to be heard and when do i fear that if i say something i might not be heard or someone mm -hmm. might talk over me or to kind of look at the micro habit sort of manifestations of power right. sometimes i think can be interesting and helpful or what are the ways in which i feel um you know that i don't have power and what are the ways in which i feel i do have power and, and just talking about that because you're right i think we all have blind spots about how i exhibit power or not and i might like to think i'm a really involving caring but for sure there will be ways if people gave me feedback i'm sure that i interrupt people or talk over people or shut people down yeah. or dismiss certain ideas or uh, or, or just the fact that i in situations where I feel like I can say this and I don't even need to think about, mm. am I going to get rejected for saying this? Is it safe for me to say this? And then there are definitely times where I do ask that question. I want to write a book called the seven manifestations or levels of power and just find ways mm. of bringing spheres of power into the world. So people can go, Oh, actually in this sphere, this is the power I have. This is the power I don't have. Um, mm. <laughs> but I want to write lots of books and most of them start off with a, yeah. a half-assed idea like this, which has a title and no, no, <laughs> nothing behind it. So maybe I won't write that book. Maybe somebody listening to this, yeah. maybe Lisa, you will write this book. Um, oh, it needs to be written. I know there's a great guy called Simon Mont who does a lot of thinking about power and, and how it sort of shows up in, right. in systems and that changing structures and processes isn't enough because power is baked into so many things yeah. and we need to make it visible that's interesting you know one of the things that you mentioned just before you started talking about uh before you read the the passage was the loneliness of wanting to change can you tell me more about that yeah so what's really helped me in my journey with all of this is finding my tribe mm. finding other people who also share the same frustrations as me or the same longings as me. And for those people that I meet in events, in trainings, uh, you know, in Zoom calls, webinars, whatever, who I can sort of see when they talk, I can hear that they're feeling that loneliness that, you know, I'm the only one in my organization that's talking about this stuff or read this book and I've tried this and I've tried that, but sometimes I feel like I'm, you know, working against so many things and i think to find your fellow rebels is so valuable to find other people so that you don't need to do this journey alone right. helps so that even if i'm alone in my organization for example i know that i have like a network of buddies out there where i can say i tried this and it didn't work so well any tips you know or or i really want to do this now in my next meeting do you have um I mean, you've done a lovely job at, you know, building your tribe. I mean, I know part of it's through the podcast because you look at the list of the guests you have and I'm like, there's so many cool people there. Um, you know, one of my favorite people in the world at the moment is uh, Bayo Akumalafe. And he's such a, mm -hmm. <laughs> he's like the, the most articulate man I've ever met in my life. Um, 
and uh, and <laughs> I haven't listened. I actually haven't listened to that episode in your podcast. But I'm wondering how much of it is a monologue from him because when he gets going, he talks. Um, <laughs> but um, do you have any guidance for people listening around how you start building a tribe? Because there are some people who are like, yeah, I could do with people in my corner. How do I even go about doing that? I I guess my first thought is to see if there's already a tribe out there mm. that you could join and you know in the context of what we're talking about now there are some really good ones out there now like reinventing work it's like a global tribe um with communities and meetup groups all over the world mm -hmm. even though it started in the uk or the reinventing organizations book by frederick Leloux has a whole tribe of people and various different communities and spaces where people hang out yeah. or liberating structures, the same. They often have, you know, Slack communities or meetup calls. So it's worth seeing if there's a tribe out there. And right. if you're not sure how to look for that, I started to find and grow and build my tribe, I guess, by reaching out to individuals. Right. If I read an article by someone or I heard someone on a podcast, I reached out to them and said, Hey, I love your work and I love what you're saying. Right. You know, are you up for a chat? Right. Um, and, and now people do that with me also, which is really fun. And, and I love connecting people to other people and right. people in this field are so generous, you know, like so many people are up for a chat and up for connecting you with more people. Yeah. And I love that you're bringing it back to conversations. It's a really nice way to kind of bring this whole, our conversation full circle. Um, I wonder as a, maybe as a final question, Lisa, um, what needs to be said in this conversation between you and me that hasn't yet been said? I really want to acknowledge and thank you for the work that you're doing oh, because it's you. really, it's really valuable for me. I'm often pointing people to your books and your work around coaching, which I think is so accessible and practical and useful. And also you. your work with this this podcast and also showcasing and championing diverse voices and people from all kinds of backgrounds and experiences, which I think is so important. And I've learned so much from listening to the guests you've already had on this podcast. So I think that's a real contribution that you make to the world. So thank you. You know, I'm very struck by Meg Wheatley's words, you know, th and these are the final words Lisa read. Love is the most potent source of power. Now, Wheatley, again, as I said in the interview, Wheatley's become a little more bleak on her outlook these days. And I do wonder if she stands by that statement. But what it's got me thinking about is how power is generated through relationship. I often think of power as residing, you know, in different amounts in individuals or with individuals. You know, she has it and he doesn't have it and I have it, but only in this amount and only in this different context. But this conversation for me was a great reminder that we're always defined by our context. And part of that context is always relationships. The ones you have, the ones you're excluded from, the ones you aspire to. So if you look at now at the relationships that you have and that you don't have, what do they tell you about the power you wield and don't wield? What does that provoke in you? And perhaps today, who might you reach out to? You're going to find Lisa's podcast at leadamorphosis.co. 
And her personal website is reimaginaire.com. I'll spell that for you. R-E-I-M-A-G-I-N-A-I-R-E.com. And of course, all of these links, as they always are, are in the show notes. Um, at her website, you'll find more information about her book, Mooseheads on the Table. If you're a Twitter fan, her handle is Disrupt and Learn, or at Disrupt and Learn. Thank you again for listening to the show. If there's somebody who you're like, oh, yeah, these people also love conversations about the future of work, please do send the interview to them. I'm always on the hunt for great listeners, people who are going to be inspired and moved by these conversations. Thank you if you've had the chance to rate the uh, show and the podcast on your favorite podcast app. And thank you if you've joined our free membership site, The Duke Humphreys, where you can get unreleased interviews, transcripts of all the interviews, and some other great downloads as well. You're awesome, and you're doing great.